Hello, friend. Welcome to Adrenaline Realm's channel for all things thriller. I am your host, Neil Helligers, and true to form, we have something very thrilling for you. This is a very special episode drop of Ninth Step Murders, Season 2, Episode 1. And uh, here it is. Didn't see it coming so quick, did you? That's pretty thrilling, right? Okay, here we go. I can't believe you're doing this. It is outside every possible code of conduct. Tokyo Metropolitan Police Detective Maeda Kensuke was flushed, very different from his usual suave persona. Ueda Yuma watched with amusement. The crack detective of the Organized Crime Bureau had forgotten himself enough to argue about codes of conduct with the head of the most powerful criminal organization in Tokyo. It wasn't the first time Maeda had been to this back office of what seemed to be only a semi-seedy bar. Oeda found it a convenient place to cultivate relations with the various authorities that could have impinged on his work. Oeda leaned back in his custom-engineered chair to enjoy Maeda's discomfiture, while keeping an eye on the large screen on the wall that showed the inner, underground bar, where a boxing ring was being prepped for the bare-knuckle match that had drawn a substantial crowd. Far sleeker and more expensive, the inner bar was accessible only to those known to the Nakajima Kai or with impeccable credentials, as well as enough cash. Technically, Maeda could have arrested someone for running an illegal fight, probably for illegal gambling as well. But that someone wouldn't be Ueda, who didn't own the club. Takamura, the lieutenant who did own it, was supremely loyal for all the right reasons. The Nakajimakai hierarchy and income flows would be undisturbed. The fights would restart somewhere else, and Maeda would gain nothing but the destruction of the long-cultivated and carefully balanced relationship that he needed to do his job, which it seemed like he was on the verge of destroying anyway. I'm not telling you how to run your business, Maeda started again. He just could not let this go, could he? But working with the Chinese... Why don't we stop with the first part of your sentence? Ueda suggested smoothly. A subtle light play on his latest model sleeve, invisible from the cop's perspective, signaled a message. Ueda touched a sensor on the sleeve and inspected the message. He paused, considering, then smiled to himself. This meeting had exhausted its usefulness in any case and the impromptu alternative had some appeal. I'm afraid I have another meeting now, but please. He gestured to the door opening inward, toward the illegal fight club. Enjoy your evening. Have a drink on me. Sometimes it did the cops good to have their noses rubbed in it. Maeda stood, offered a bow that was answered with a nod, and went through the inward door and down the steps. In the office, Ueda waited until Maeda had moved out of the foreground of the image on his wall before swiping in the indication that he was ready for his next meeting. The door from the street-level bar opened, and Emma Higashi was shown in. She bowed politely. Thank you for meeting with me. Ueda knew of the U.S. peacekeeper, but he had never met her in person. Her Japanese was better than he expected, if a trifle on the formal side. I'm afraid I only have a few minutes, Lieutenant, he said in English, 
What can I do for you? He kept an eye on the ring. The fight should be starting soon, and it would be a good one. Himura Yoshie always drew a crowd. If Higashi was unnerved by his perfect English, she didn't show it. I'm looking for Commander Vargas's killer. When she didn't go on, Ueda spread his hands. Why have you come here in that search? The weapon that was used in the assassination was extremely specialized. I know that you have some awareness of the movement of such weapons in the city. A nice euphemism for the fact that Nakajima Kai controlled the illegal trade. Even to narrow it down to the people who purchased that type of weapon, or its ammunition or auxiliary pieces, over the past half year or so, she trailed off. Very Japanese. The United States is occupying my city, Ueda said, keeping his voice gentle so it didn't sound like a direct accusation. Why should I help you with your internal problems? Higashi didn't bristle. The initial suspicion, of course, fell on the Chinese, but they have pretty conclusively shown that they weren't involved, at least not directly. The officers replacing Commander Vargas are new. They come with certain preconceptions about this country. It seems likely that suspicion may fall upon known criminal elements. Her eyes met his. If I believed that, of course, I wouldn't be here, but I could use some help convincing them. Ueda let her hang there for a moment, then inclined his head slightly. I will take that under consideration. For the moment, as I mentioned, I have another appointment. Before you leave, perhaps you would enjoy a drink in the other section of this club. He nodded to the screen on the wall and smiled. On the house, of course. Higashi stood reluctantly and bowed again. The door opened for her in response to Ueda's cue, and he smiled as she almost stumbled on the first step down. The monitor showing the closed-circuit stream from the inner bar was high-resolution enough to convince most people that it was a one-way mirror. Ueda watched her progress through the room, fingers steepled. He hadn't intended to have three police officers in the club tonight, but it did add a certain piquancy. In the ring, Himura was warming up, mugging viciously at his less experienced, less well-known opponent. Ueda waited until Higashi had settled herself against a wall, apparently not noticing Maeda at the bar, before signaling his assistant to let in the next meeting. Koreda Miyako, Tokyo Metropolitan Police Detective and Higashi's partner, burst into the room. Well? Ueda raised his eyebrows. Koreda lifted her arm and pulled up the cuff of her jacket to read from her sleeve. Brawl at the Vermilion Shark. Weapons suspected. Request Detective Koreda. She glared at him. I don't see any signs of a brawl. So I'm assuming I just rushed over here, dropping my other casework for... some other reason? I have something to communicate, Ueda said. An anonymous call seemed like the safest and easiest way to make contact. Easiest for you, Koreda grumbled. You don't have to do the paperwork. Ueda let his gaze float back to the bare-knuckle fight that had just started on the screen. Higashi appeared to be watching, 
If Maeda was doing so, he was using the mirror behind the bar. Well? Koreda demanded again. What is it you want to communicate? Ueda let his eyebrows rise. You do understand that this communication does not stop with you. It must go on to our mutual friends. I'm not your damn courier service, Koreda said. Ueda wondered why she was being so recalcitrant about what was, really, a very minor ask in the context of resistance against the occupying Chinese force. Is that so? Because if you are reluctant to do this, I have to wonder what other service you're performing as per our agreement. She gaped at him, and he shrugged to mitigate the sting. It is the least you can do, he suggested. Fine, Koreda said. Just tell me. I'll figure out some way to pass it along. The situation is this. Ueda began, but before he could continue, Koreda stood up from her chair. He followed her gaze to the monitor on the wall and caught the second half of the motion that must have drawn her attention, as three people, slumped on the bar, slid in quiet unison to the floor. A second later, one of the fighters in the ring, hit by a roundhouse kick to the jaw, mimicked their motion. Koreda ran for the inner door. Emma was watching the fight when the bodies dropped, but she caught the movement from the corner of her eye. Three people slid to the floor at the same time and sprawled there, awkwardly still. Emma was pushing her way through the crowd to get to them and almost stumbled over someone else lying on the floor. Someone who must have been standing at the narrow table where an expensively made-up woman now appeared to be hyperventilating. Emma crouched down to feel for a pulse then stood and tapped out a quick message to Miyoko, CCing the bureau. Emma stood. Don't touch anything, she yelled at the panicked woman, hoping she had gotten the level of politeness and urgency right given the situation, and started toward the bar again. Oddly, the person at the bar turning to see what had happened to the men on either side of them had the same shade of hair iridescence as Kensuke, or maybe that was a trick of the lights. No. Nope. Emma realized as he bent over one of the bodies. That was, in fact, Kensuke. Hey, she said in English as she walked up to him. Here to enjoy the fights? Kensuke glanced up at her and did a very satisfying double take. Emma, what are you doing here? I asked first, Emma said, stepping past him to check the next body. Dead. They were all dead. I'm here on official police business, Kensuke said. His annoyance was also very satisfying. And you? Official U.S. government business, Emma said, glancing at her sleeve. About to become official Tokyo MPD business. Miyako's on the way. Miyako was, in fact, moving in the opposite direction at that moment. She had started down the stairs from Ueda's office, almost falling down them in her hurry, only to stop hard just before the second door when she got the message from Emma. She hesitated for a long moment, 
teetering between the second and third steps, before backtracking toward the street exit and tamailing Emma that she was in the area and would be there shortly. Then she went to walk around the block. When she got back to the club and was shown downstairs, she found the lights on, the crowd annoyed, and Emma taking witness statements with Kenske, who glanced up at her with a somewhat sheepish look. Miyako stifled a sigh. Was this really a date spot? She didn't want to know. What do we have? Emma excused herself from the interview, leaving it to Kensuke, and followed Miyako to the bubble of quiet around the bodies by the bar. Four bodies, Emma said. Three at the bar, one at the table. Techs are on the way, Miyako said, glancing at the ETA. Twelve minutes on her sleeve. But you have a theory? They were all drinking that. Emma pointed at a chalkboard leaning against the mirror behind the bar with three suggestions, or specials, scrawled on it. The first one. She grimaced. Miyako gaped. The first cocktail on the list was called the Peacekeeper. Bourbon, yuzushu, house-made anise-infused bitters, sprig of rosemary, she read out loud. Served in a red solo cup. How would that help peace? Emma ignored that. The anise-infused bitters and rosemary are fairly unusual. They're not listed among the other specials, and only the rosemary occurs elsewhere on the standard menu. As far as we've been able to ascertain so far, she glanced over at Kinsuke, no one other than the victims had drunk the special. Miyako nodded. Who has access to the ingredients? The bartender, of course. There's only one on duty tonight. Although there are two... Emma hesitated but had to switch to the English word. Barbacks, who restock and lug ice around and so forth. Other than that, no one should have been back there since they opened for business at 9 p.m. Before that, it's sketchier, but... Emma tilted her head meaningfully. Miyako followed her gaze and found the 100-yen coin-sized cameras blending into the decor. Should give us pretty full coverage, Emma said. Miyako gazed at the cameras thoughtfully. Weird place to kill someone. In a bar? Miyako turned her eyes back to Emma. In an underground, semi-legal bar run by the most powerful gang in town. Seems a little risky, doesn't it? Emma nodded slowly. When you put it that way, she said. And Miyako wondered if she hadn't known about the Nakajimakai connection to the bar. Maybe this was the only place they could get to the victim? But what I'm confused about is why four people? Was it a mistake? A misdirection? Were they all targets who were somehow convinced to all order the same drink? Who came up with that special? Miyako asked. The bartender, Yamamoto Kenji, Emma said. He creates all the new drinks, with no oversight from anyone. By his own admission, no one knew what the special was going to be until he wrote it on that board around 7 p.m. tonight. We'll wait for the text to go over the scene, Miyako decided. But barring some major discovery, we're taking the bartender in for questioning once they're done. Emma woke the next morning to the persistent beeping of an urgent message alert from her sleeve, docked for charging next to the bed. It was far too early. It had been an extremely late night. After the crime techs finished, 
They had taken in the bartender and done the initial round of questioning, and then it had taken forever to find a taxi back to the barracks. Cars were getting scarcer and scarcer as fuel prices soared, making the commute back and forth to the barracks time-consuming and expensive. The bartender, Yamamoto, had done an awfully good impression of shock and bewilderment, claiming he had no idea how his cocktail could have proven fatal and that he was devastated over the people who had died. Emma found it difficult not to believe him, but of course he worked at a bar run by organized crime and a killer cocktail called The Peacekeeper, so soon after Santiago's assassination, seemed suggestive, if not outright offensive. She rubbed her eyes and reached for the sleeve. With any luck, the message was from Miyako or the crime tech Sato, or one of the data miners with news that would crack the case wide open. The message that she found instead woke Emma up as effectively as an infusion of caffeine direct to the brain. There was a message for her in the latest diplomatic pouch. It had to be a response to her request that Charles Yardley III, her former boss and a murderer, be removed from Japan. She had made the situation as clear as she dared in her messages to the DOD, Emma thought, as she hurried down the hall. Charles was a criminal and a traitor who was endangering peacekeeping efforts in Japan. They had to get rid of him. At least this was one advantage of living in the barracks. Emma collected the message and opened it in the tiny Faraday-caged booth provided for that purpose. It was encrypted on paper, as the least sniffable technology. Fortunately, she had an app in her eye that helped with decryption, so she was spared the pencil work, and the message revealed itself slowly as the letters rearranged and changed in her vision. Further considerations, beyond the scope of Lieutenant Higashi's position, role in U.S. foreign policy, knowledge of Japan unparalleled, Emma had to take several deep breaths before she could toss the note into the chemical incinerator and leave the booth. She nodded to the private working the desk and left, still working on her breathing, when all she wanted to do was yell. How could they possibly leave Charles here? He assassinated a foreign member of parliament. He sold weapons to a political group. Most of all, Emma didn't want to be stuck with the moral quandary of whether or not to tell Miyako what really happened to Kobayashi. Thinking about Miyako reminded her of their current case. She typed out a quick message to ask if there were any updates, but Miyako's sleeve was turned off. That was odd. But maybe she had decided she really needed the sleep after last night. In any case, Emma was too angry to go back to bed. She got her bag and headed for the subway. Hello, friend. This is Neil Helligers, host of Adrenaline Realms Thriller Channel, and I'm here to talk to you a little bit more about the Greenlight app. And this message is, of course, sponsored by Greenlight, but I was using, our family was using the Greenlight app uh, even before the first ad in a wonderful, thrilling, cosmic coincidence, right? See what I did there? 
So again, to catch you up, Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. Basically, the way it works is that parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their kids' spending and saving. And you can see exactly how much money they have in their account. And there's different ways to give them money. What we've been doing is on a, like a weekly allowance, a certain amount that goes into his account every week. So in order to further the conversation about money and about earning, uh, we're using Greenlight as a kind of a foundation for that conversation. Uh, in other words, instead of just the allowance he gets for certain base things that he's expected to do around the house, uh, we are also adding the chore feature, which is certain one-time payments for certain one-time jobs. For example, in our house, we're trying to encourage our son to start walking the dog more. He's old enough for it, he's responsible enough for it, and he's done it enough that he knows what to do. So he can really see that for all those extra times that he steps up and does the dog walk, he gets rewarded for that job well done. And this is the conversation. In life, when you work a little extra harder, you get a little extra compensation and you can either save that up or spend it how you like. And we're not alone in this. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's a very easy and very convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate life together. So sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash adrenaline. That's greenlight.com slash adrenaline to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash adrenaline slash 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 slash. So thrilling, right? Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Miyako tried not to jitter in any visible way as she sat beside Superintendent Nishimura, her boss in the Criminal Investigations Division, at the long table in the Shinjuku City office, where the Chinese had set up the administration of their zone. She didn't know what this meeting was about, and she could feel Nishimura's tension beside her through the lengthy formal greetings. Miyako kept her eyes off Emma's old boss, Charles Yardley, who had proved himself extremely creepy. She did let herself check out Emma's new boss, Commander Vargas's replacement, Jim McDowell. He was in military uniform and looked straight at the speaker the entire time without fidgeting once. Miyako had to wonder whether the U.S. military was experimenting with cyborgs. Finally, Wei Qing, the aide to the Chinese zone governor who was holding the event, came to the point. We wanted to inform you all, he said in English, that we have heard your calls for greater inclusion of locals as we try to reform the administration of this troubled city, particularly in the wake of the tragic death of Commander Santiago. Miyako dug her nails into her leg under the table. In that view, we have appointed a new Japanese police captain to work with our force, covering particularly the westernmost area of our zone. 
That meant the part they had just conquered in the last military action, previously part of ASEAN. He will report directly to our Commissioner for Peace and Safety, but will also have his own Japanese squad under his command. A figurehead? Or someone with real power? Please join me in welcoming Ren Daisuke. Miyako managed not to turn to look at Nishimura, and she was sure he wasn't looking at her, although they must have been feeling the same incredulity. Ren was one of the Nakajimakai's best-known, most vicious lieutenants, and the Chinese were appointing him to be in charge of law and order, and patting themselves on the back about it. She smothered her anger as Ren bowed and made a short speech. The worst part was the congratulations from the U.S. and ASEAN representatives, falling over themselves to commend the Chinese on their willingness to involve the Japanese, clearly oblivious to Ren's unorthodox qualifications. Miyako thought she caught a sardonic expression on Charles's face, but since she was still careful not to look directly at him, it was hard to tell. It was obligatory that Nishimura greet the new captain. Thankful that she could remain in his shadow, Miyako followed a step behind and was careful to time her bow exactly with his, a fraction too shallow and a fraction too short. And Nishimura's congratulations were a degree too formal. A pallid satisfaction, especially since the grin on Ren's face told her he received the message perfectly and was amused by it. Fortunately, they had brought a two-seater vehicle, so Miyako only had to hold out until they found it in the parking garage. She waited for Nishimura to make some comment, but he was silent until they had passed through the checkpoint in the drone wall, far stricter since the events following Commander Vargas's assassination. It's a provocation, he said without preamble once they were in the narrow buffer strip of ASEAN territory. Did he believe Chinese surveillance could reach inside their vehicle? It doesn't make me feel any better about that agreement, Miyako said. The agreement by which the Nakajimakai offered to work with the resistance against the Chinese occupation, and the police agreed to help them. Nishimura acknowledged the truth of that with silence, then added, Strategically, however. It was true. The Nakajimakai having more authority on the Chinese side of the drone border could be very useful for the resistance, if the criminal organization was being honest about truly working with them, and not merely following their own interests to exploit more territory in the city. I suppose this is what Ueda wanted to tell me last night. Miyako sighed. Hmm? I was called to the Vermilion Shark about a brawl that turned out to be a false alarm, but I was interrupted when four people died suddenly there. You have the case file. Nishimura grunted acknowledgement, and Miyako turned her mind to the investigation. Last night it had seemed unappealing. Trying to convict someone over protestations of innocence was never pleasant. But now it felt like a far more relaxing option than continuing to turn geopolitics over in her head. By the time Miyako got to the office, the initial forensics report had come in. The victims had all died from an overdose of cyanide, 
and large quantities of the poison had been found in the jar of infused bitters. Emma, who had known this for hours, was scanning the security videos provided by the owner of the club. We have an almost perfect view of the bar itself, Emma explained, showing Miyoko what she was doing. We can't actually see the jar of bitters, which was kept on a shelf inside the bar around here. She pointed to a spot on the outside of the bar. But we can see anyone who enters or exits the bar, and whether they get anywhere near it. What time frame are we looking at? Miyako asked, trying to focus. She was having trouble getting her mind off the smirk on Ren's face. And Wei Ching's, for that matter. Anakajima Kai Lieutenant in charge of policing. He would be a criminal on this side of the drone border and a cop on the other. The bartender Yamamoto claimed that he developed the special cocktails that afternoon between four and five, and tasted them all as he was in the process of mixing them. He was pretty eager to explain everything. I don't know if he realized how incriminating that bit of info was. Emma tapped the screen, entering the time, and the image shifted to show the slender, long-haired bartender mixing and tasting. Emma froze it. So here he puts the bitters in. And, she let it play forward, he drinks it. She leaned back. I've watched the entire evening since then twice. Both barbacks go behind the bar at a couple of points, but on this end, neither of them goes near where we see him put the jar back. He's the only one back there between the time he drinks those bitters and when they kill four people. Miyako sat back, considering... This, at least, was intriguing enough to take her mind off the Chinese. It doesn't make sense. Nope, it doesn't, Emma agreed. He knew the camera was there, right? Had to, Miyako said, her eyes still on the figure on the screen. And even if he didn't... Even if he didn't, he would have had to know he'd be the prime suspect. Forget prime suspect, Miyako said. This guy is a bartender in a Nakajimakai club. What do you think they'll do to him if they decide he's guilty? Unless. Could it be that this was connected to the surprise announcement this morning? Maybe the bartender had a connection with Ren, who was now a so-called police captain. But the bar wasn't in the Chinese zone. She chewed her lip. Is it possible there are two identical jars? You mean he did a switch with the bitters? If so, the other one didn't turn up in evidence. He would have had to get rid of it at some point, and I don't see how he could get it out of there without us seeing it on the video. There was a pause. He swears he didn't do it. I know, Miyako answered, distracted. Normally that didn't hold much weight, but Yamamoto seemed legitimately stricken by the fact that he had killed four people. Maybe he was a dupe somehow even if they couldn't figure out exactly how. Could he have been told to put something in the drinks that he thought would be harmless? But it wasn't. A guilty thought stole into her mind. Was it possible that was what had happened with Kaori? Miyako didn't want to believe her girlfriend had anything to do with Santiago's assassination. But she had been one of the dozen or so people in a position to have put the beacon on him. Maybe she did it without knowing what it was. Is it possible he built up a resistance to cyanide? Emma asked, breaking into her thoughts. I'm not sure, Miyako admitted. Send the query to the data miners.
She got up. Want tea? Great idea, Emma said with feeling, and followed her to the tea station. Miyako filled the small pot and took a handful of hard candies, while Emma brought their mugs. Who was the target? Miyako said, when they got back to their workstation. Not at all clear, Emma answered. You've read the data on the victims? Miyako had skimmed it on her way back from the meeting that morning, and she read through again now. None of them stand out. And none of them seem to be connected. And why four? Emma shrugged. Random psychotic break? She didn't sound very convinced. I'm still stuck on it being in a Nakajimakai club, Miyako pointed out. An underground Nakajimakai club. Not the place I'd pick for a random murder spree. Although, could it have been a hit for the Nakajimakai instead of on them? And Yamamoto is taking the fall? Emma thought about it. Makes as much sense as anything else we've come up with. But then wouldn't he just admit it and clam up? Maybe he really didn't mean to kill all four of them, Miyako suggested. It's not like they were sharing drinks, Emma said. He poured the poison separately for each of them. All right. Tea finished. Miyako stood. I'm taking another crack at the bartender. But more importantly, we need to look at how each of these people is related to the Nakajimakai, including Yamamoto. I want to know how he got involved, who he's worked for before this job, where his loyalty lies. Emma sighed. Do you want to talk to Kensuke? Or should I? Miyako looked at her in surprise. After seeing them together in the bar, she wouldn't have thought Emma would be reluctant to talk to him. Uh, either way, she said. Or, actually, since he was at the bar last night, maybe we should talk to someone else in the Organized Crime Bureau. Try Nakahara. He hasn't been there as long as Kensuke, but he should be able to help. It was a long and frustrating day. The hours seemed to swim by slowly with lots of work, but without much getting done. Nakahara-san turned out to be a diffident, middle-aged toothpick of a man with very polite Japanese and none of Kensuke's charm. Emma wondered, a little sourly, whether Miyako regretted having introduced her to Kensuke in the first place. All he could tell her immediately was that Yamamoto Kenji was not an official member of the Nakajimakai, but he assured her that there were many hangers-on who were entangled in the organization's web of loyalty and debt. I'll do some sniffing and get back to you, he promised. After that, Emma went to visit the data miners. She could have just sent them a message, but she found the company of the small clutch of older women who rotated shifts there soothing somehow. She asked them to look into cyanide, particularly immunity and built immunity, and also sicked them on Yamamoto Kenji. Nakahara hadn't inspired a lot of confidence. She spent the rest of the afternoon re-interviewing some of the witnesses from the club and going over statements from the rest. Hopefully, the forensic analysis of the cyanide would yield something. Or the investigation into Yamamoto would. Hey, Miyako said, coming over. Anything? Not really. You? Nothing of note. She hesitated. I asked the club owner to come in. 
Takamura Shinji. He'll be here tomorrow at eleven. Maybe he'll have something to add. I hope so, Emma said. All right. Well, I'm heading out, Miyako responded. Uh, actually, Emma said. Miyako paused, waiting. But Emma had to swallow before continuing. I'm going to hang around for a while to work on the Santiago case. Miyako froze. Maybe, if you're not busy, Emma went on, feeling hopelessly awkward. She hadn't thought it would be this difficult to say. Sorry, Miyako said, snapping out of it. I, in fact, I have a date. Oh, of course, Emma mumbled. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow then. Miyako bowed slightly and left, and Emma turned back to her computer. That had been awkward. Maybe Miyako was still embarrassed because of the way Kaori had been used against her. Or the possibility, still not disproven, although it seemed unlikely, that she was responsible for planting the target on Santiago. With a sigh, Emma started opening up the different videos of the assassination. Three security cameras in the park and twelve amateur videos taken by attendees. She arranged them across her screen and played them, looking for anything she hadn't seen before, any discrepancy, anything that would give her a thread to pull or a clue to follow. She didn't realize until much later that she was crying. Miyako did have a date, although she hadn't intended to mention it to Emma. The truth was the first excuse she could think of to avoid pretending to investigate a case in which she already knew the culprit and couldn't tell anyone. She was late to meet Kaori. The checkpoints were taking much longer these days, especially without her police ID, which Miyako refused to use for personal travel. Waiting in line in front of the booth planted in the middle of the drone wall by Jose University, Miyako wondered if, one of these days, they were going to close the border completely. The thought made her shiver even in the warm night, but when she finally got to the checkpoint she was waved through easily enough. Fortunately, they hadn't had anything special planned. What was their special to plan anyway? Miyako suggested, as casually as possible, that they order pizza. It was expensive, but there was virtually no pizza delivery available now on the Japanese side, and she missed it. It was a relief to watch a movie in Kawari's cool apartment. Air conditioning still worked on the Chinese side. And not think... Only occasionally did she emerge from her immersion in the storyline, a really silly romantic comedy, to glance at Kaori and wonder. Emma got up early the next morning for an appointment with her new supervisor. Corporal McDowell had met with her once just after his arrival. He had very correctly expressed his condolences on Commander Vargas's death given her a concise summary on his brief, and informed her that for the moment she should continue what seemed to be a very productive secondment with the Metropolitan Police. Since then, she had been on the receiving end of a number of mission-wide emails. 
McDowell considered her request to move back to her off-base apartment with the deliberation of a new supervisor who didn't want to give in too easily, then agreed as long as she cleared it with the security officer. Thank you, Emma said, not feeling entirely reassured as to his leadership qualities. Still, he was new, and he had to be swamped, between the new military forces arriving and the increasing hum of diplomacy in the wake of China's latest aggression. Not a problem, he said. Actually, I wanted to ask if you were hearing anything from your contacts at the police department about China's new police captain. Not wanting to say she hadn't heard anything at all, Emma nodded. I've been pretty wrapped up in a case over the last few days, but I'll ask around. He's Japanese, McDowell went on which seems like a positive step, but my impression was that the TMPD representatives at the meeting yesterday did not seem overjoyed. He glanced at his sleeve. Was there anything else? Emma hesitated. But no, she couldn't let it go. The other thing is about my former supervisor. Yardley? McDowell asked, eyebrows rising. I understand you had some sort of personality conflict with him. Maybe some problem related to your partner on the TMPD? So that's how Charles was selling it. That was resolved, Emma said, speaking slowly to give herself time to think. The issue is that I have reason to suspect he... It was so hard to say. That he might be working against U.S. interests in the region. McDowell's eyebrows went through the roof. That's a very serious accusation. I understand the diplomatic corps have every confidence in him. Emma smiled to hide her chagrin. Charles had got here first. Of course. In that case, she said, and stood, unable to say anything else other than what she was thinking. I'll come back when I have evidence. Miyako had resisted the urge to stay over at Kaori's, going back to her hot apartment with its ineffectual mini-fan instead. There was, theoretically, central AC in her building, but blackouts had increased and building management had become less and less engaged. Miyako suspected that many of the units were empty, and it hadn't been turned on since late May. She woke early and dressed in the muggy darkness. Nishimura had agreed to meet her for a coffee before her shift. I'm just not sure about this new... Merger, she said, once they were ensconced in a booth in Cafe Connection, an outpost of a small local chain. It was quiet, but she still felt she should speak in code. Nishimura grunted. I understand your feeling, especially after yesterday. But there's not much we can do about it, and we really shouldn't talk about it. Miyako opened her mouth, but he forestalled her with a look. We're too visibly connected. You need another contact. Nishimura reached into his breast pocket and pulled out a scrap of paper and a pen. As he scribbled, Miyako tried to remember if she had ever seen him write on paper before. I'll see you later, he said, handing her the paper and walking out. Sorry I'm late, Emma said, hurrying up to the workstation. Miyako looked up, surprised. I had to stop in to talk to the security officer to get permission to move back to my apartment. 
Miyako had a moment of wondering whether that would make it easier for Emma to figure out who killed Commander Vargas, and then realized that moment had stretched uncomfortably long. That's great, she said. Emma, slinging off her bag, gave her some kind of look, but seemed willing to move on. Anything new on the case? Not really. Miyako sighed and pulled up her case dashboard. There was a note from the data miners. You can't really build up an immunity to cyanide, although they suggested that there might be some biotechnical antidote, so they suggested blood and urine tests on the bartender. Sounds good, Emma said. And we have two different rundowns on Yamamoto's interactions with the Nakajima Kai. One from Nakamura, Miyako pulled up a three-page essay, and one from the data miners. The latter was in the form of a complicated three-dimensional relationship tree. Wow, Emma said, sliding into her chair. Yeah, Miyako said, turning the diagram to what she wanted to show Emma. We definitely don't pay them enough. So it looks like Yamamoto was a college dropout when he took his first bartending job at a different bar associated with the Nakajima Kai, then moved to the Vermilion Shark two and a half years ago. But what concerns me is this. She traced another line. His cousin used to work for Ren Daisuke as a low-level enforcer. Emma frowned. Who's Ren Daisuke? Miyako sighed. The new police captain in the Chinese zone. What? Emma gasped. Oh, wait, I did hear something about that. It was announced yesterday, Miyako said. Sorry, I should have mentioned it. I just didn't want to think about it. They made a gang leader a cop? Emma said. It's a provocation, that's all, Miyako responded. A provocation, or maybe the Nakajima Kai made a deal. She hadn't meant to say that, but she couldn't get the possibility out of her head. Besides, if it wasn't true, it was probably a good way to throw people off track. Anyway, Takamura-san should be here any minute. The owner of the Vermilion Shark Bar turned out to be a well-dressed man in his fifties. Ink-black hair combed ambitiously over a widening bald spot. He didn't bluster. On the contrary, he conveyed his impatience with tight-lipped correctness. It was only when Miyako told him how the poison had been conveyed that he lost his composure. The Yanis bitters! Yes, Miyako said, and when he turned pale but said nothing more, pushed on. What is the significance of that? That's part of my signature drink, he whispered. That's why I insisted they infuse them in-house. It's an ingredient that is very rarely used otherwise. When was the last time you drank your signature drink? Emma asked. He shook his head, still perturbed. I don't know. Wednesday I wasn't there. Thursday I went, and I did have my drink, but I ordered it and had it made in the front bar. A different jar of bitters? Miyako asked. He nodded. Was that unusual? That you had the drink in the front bar? He harumphed. It happens from time to time. If I'm in my own office, I order from the back bar but when I'm not, I usually sit in the front bar. There was a silence while Miyako reflected that if she hadn't been meeting with Ueda that day, this man might be dead. She glanced at Emma, but she didn't seem ready either. Um, is there anyone you think might want to harm you? Miyako winced as the question came out. 
Takamura gave that the disdain it deserved and did not answer. How long has Yamamoto been working for you? Emma asked. A few years, Takamura said. I don't know. Did you hire him? Takamura shifted. How should I remember? But I know he came very highly recommended. Was that by Ren Daisuke? Another harumph. It was years ago, but I know several people who attested to his trustworthiness. Someone was trying to kill Takamura, Emma said, when he had gone. The other four were an accident, Miyako agreed. No wonder Yamamoto was all broken up about them. But that doesn't make any sense, Emma argued. If it was Yamamoto, why would he make the special of the night use the one ingredient he had poisoned? Maybe he did intend to kill additional people, as cover, Miyako suggested. But he still would have held back on serving their drinks until he was sure he had gotten Takamura, wouldn't he? Bottom line, Miyako said. He's the only person with access to that jar between when he tried the special and when those people died. You're going to take another crack at him in the box? Emma asked. Yeah. Want to join? Emma shook her head. I'm going to check back in with the data miners and see if I can find any holes in the videos. She glanced at her sleeve. But first I have to go out for a little while, if that's okay. Of course, Miyako said. I'll buzz you if I find anything. My sleeve will be on, Emma promised. I should be back in an hour, tops. But it ended up taking much more than an hour. At least, Emma thought, waiting in the immense line for the border checkpoint. This was the investigation she was supposed to be pursuing, so she had a legitimate reason for being late back to work. Thinking back over the time since Santiago had been killed, assassinated, she realized that she hadn't crossed the border since it moved, since the Chinese moved it. She remembered the acrid smoke of that night and blinked away the memories. At the border, a small structure had been set up for people to step into for clearance, like a phone booth with doors on both sides. On the large screen to one side was a blocky, pixelated image of, presumably, a Chinese immigration officer. Identification number plastered across the bottom. Please present your ID to the camera, a voice said in Japanese, and then repeated it in Chinese, and then in English. Emma did so. There was a long pause. What is your business in this area? The voice asked, now in English only. Official U.S. Embassy business, Emma said. Another long pause. Was it a technological problem or were they trolling her? Who is your superior officer? Corporal Jim McDowell, Emma said, trying not to let her frustration show. How long will you be on this side of the border? Including wait time in the checkpoint line on the way out? Emma snarked before she could stop herself. Don't worry, the voice answered, any smile obscured by the voice standardization algorithm. Far fewer people want to leave. The door in front of Emma slid open. Getting to where she was going turned out to be far easier than she expected. 
Emma's plan had been to navigate to the GPS coordinates using maps saved in her ocular implant memory. But she had barely made it one block before her sleeve pinged with a notification that there was a public transport unit approaching for the direction she seemed to be heading. This turned out to be an electric bus. Quiet, sleek, smooth riding, and blessedly air-conditioned. Emma resented every second of it, but it got her to within a block of her destination for only 100 yen, which was hard to argue with, especially in this heat. The bullet that killed Santiago had been traced to a sniper's nest in Akasaka Park. In the heated aftermath of the assassination, the Chinese had insisted on investigating themselves, although they did share data and videos from the investigation. But Emma was a sniper. She needed to get a feel for it herself. All of the evidence had been removed, but she had a precise location and a mock-up of the weapon, and she had been able to arrive at approximately the same time of day as the assassination. It was a good spot, well-shaded and out of line of sight from any of the footpaths. It was out of line of sight from the target, too, but that was why there had been a beacon planted on Santiago. Emma was sprawled on the grass, aiming her cardboard tube gun and trying to feel her way into the assassin's situation. When she heard a cough, she let go of the fake weapon and raised her hands as she rolled over. There were two guys in suits standing over her. Yes, she said in her best annoyed Japanese accent. Were these jokers tourists getting a laugh out of her? Just wondering what you're up to, one of the men said amiably. He held out a hand, but Emma scrambled to her feet on her own. How is that any of your business? She laid on the honorifics as thickly as she could, but it probably came out sounding weird because the guy just grinned at her. Well, he said, just as it occurred to Emma that the man who wasn't speaking was acting exactly like a bodyguard. I'm in charge of policing this zone. Ren Daisuke, nice to meet you. Emma brushed herself off. Well then, I suppose we're colleagues. She bowed. Higashi Emma of the U.S. Peacekeeping Force, currently assigned to the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department. Well, Higashi-san. As he spoke, Ren started walking toward the exit, drawing Emma along with him, the bodyguard trailing her. I can guess why you're here, and my suggestion is that you carefully examine your assumptions. The answer may be closer than you expect. Riddles? Emma asked in English. She didn't know the word in Japanese, and Ren seemed educated and polished enough to be bilingual. But he frowned for a moment, maybe searching for the word. A friendly advice, he said, his English heavily accented, and then switched back to Japanese. I look forward to working with you, Higashi-san. Emma was primed to tell Miyako about Ren as soon as she got back to Ninth Step. How had he known she was there? Was it chance, or had he been tracking her? And did he know something about the assassination, or was that some bullshit attempt to sow division? But the moment she arrived, she could see Miyako was bursting with news. Did you read your notices? No? Miyako waited, practically bouncing, while Emma tapped the case updates file on her sleeve. The first message was from the data miners. 
They had not found any evidence of cyanide in Yamamoto's system, but the blood test had turned up some unexplained nanobots, which could potentially be an immunization mechanism or completely unrelated. Huh, Emma said. Keep going, Miyako urged. The next message was a follow-up. The data miners had sent the nanobots to Sato, who had dissected one and discovered that it contained grains of cyanide. What? And a transmission receiver. What? So, Miyako said, almost gleefully considering it was Miyako. I asked for a follow-up examination of the bodies, and... They found nanobots? They found nanobots. Same make, but sans cyanide. Miyako waited silently while Emma worked it out. It wasn't the bartender. Unless he's way subtle, Miyako agreed. So somebody dosed the jar a while ago and only activated the poison by telling the nanobots to jettison the cyanide that night, after Yamamoto tested his recipes. That's what it looks like. So we should be going back through previous videos, Emma said, sliding into her chair. That's what I've been doing, Miyako said. I started three days before the deaths, since Takamura said he didn't come in Wednesday and I can't imagine the assassin waiting too long after they loaded the nanobots to use them. But I didn't find anything, so I've been working my way backwards. We can divide them up. Is it possible to cross-reference videos with people who were at the bar on the night in question? Emma asked. Maybe. Do you want to try that while I keep scanning? It only took Emma 15 minutes or so to set up the scanning routine. But because so many of the staff and even customers were there almost every night, it didn't narrow things down too much. She was still combing through the hits when Miyako called her over. I have someone going behind the bar a week before the incident, Miyako said. But I'm not sure if he was there that night. Do you recognize him? It only took Emma a second. It's the fighter! The fighter who got knocked out right after those four people collapsed. The fighter, Himura Yoshie, lived in a tiny apartment on a 10th floor in Arakawa. Emma argued for calling in SWAT backup. He's a professional pugilist. But Miyako, while admiring the word pugilist, pointed out that they had no reason to believe he would be armed. They compromised by requesting a few extra bodies. Nishimura, grumbling that everyone in the bureau was busy, found them a beat cop and told them to get on with it. Himura opened the door when they rang. His face still bore the bruises from the fight he had lost on Thursday, and his bulk seemed to fill the entire doorway. But the moment Miyako held up her badge, his shoulders sloped. Can I help you? He asked, eyes flicking between them. We'd like to talk to you about the incident the other night at the Vermilion Shark, Miyako said. Could we come in? Himura stepped out of the doorway without comment retreating into an apartment that probably looked like shit before the war, with 90s-era furniture and cracked linoleum on the floors. As they settled themselves in uncomfortable chairs, Miyako saw Emma open her mouth and shot her a look. Emma immediately leaned back, deferring to her partner, and Miyako felt a thrill of pride in how they were able to communicate and work together before she turned back to the beaten fighter. Himura-san, Miyako started, as gently as she could. I don't know if you know me, but I used to compete in judo, 
She waited until his eyes widened with recognition. Yes, even at the Olympics. Although, she allowed herself a self-deprecating laugh. As you may know, I was not able to win the gold for our country. You fought well, though, Himura said, voice creaky. I remember. Miyako bowed and went on. I remember what it's like for fighters. People think that if you fight for money, your body is theirs. They think they control you. They don't understand the honor of the fight, the cost of it. That was as far as she had to go before Himura started sobbing. I am so sorry, he managed to say. I did not mean to kill those four people. I have been begging for forgiveness from them every day. Takamura, you understand. He made me throw fights. He stole from me. And there was no way I could leave. Not until they carried me out. Where did you get the nanobots? Miyako asked. Himura was still crying. On the internet. Who sold them? I don't know. Miyako didn't buy it. Too many people, within or outside of the Nakajimakai, must have wanted Takamura, and a fighter in a gang bar would have had plenty of opportunity to get to know the people who could find him murder weapons. But she would work on looking into that tomorrow. For now, she told the beat cop to take Himura into custody. Emma was looking at her as they stepped out of the building into the fresher air of the street. That was incredible. Miyako shrugged trying to hide her pleasure. I wasn't sure it would work, but when we saw his face at the door, I don't know, I just had an idea. Well, it was amazing, Emma said. Want to celebrate? Miyako glanced in her sleeve. I'd love to, but... You have a date? Emma guessed, with a grin. Yeah, sorry. No worries, Emma said. We'll get a drink tomorrow night. Have fun. Thanks, Miyako said, and went back to her sleeve as Emma walked away. Kaori had messaged her offering to come to her place, and Miyako wrote back to say she didn't mind crossing the border, that it was easier for her. It wasn't, but she didn't want Kaori to attract any more attention. Listening to the fighter talk about how much he had hated Takamura, she had wondered whether Kaori had hated Commander Vargas, or hated the U.S. peacekeepers, or hated the Chinese whose rules she lived under enough to help kill someone else entirely to get rid of them. Then Miyako had reproved herself. Probably Kaori had nothing to do with it at all. There had been hundreds of people at that banquet. Dozens had been held under suspicion with very little evidence. So she would cross the border so Kaori's name didn't get listed and she didn't come to the attention of the authorities. Chinese or U.S., as someone who crossed over a lot. Besides, air conditioning. Emma was on the subway on what she hoped would be one of her last trips to the barracks before moving back to her apartment, when Ueda Yuma got in her car three stops before hers. Emma's first reaction was that she felt a little shabby next to his sleek black dress shirt and pants and subtly shiny hair. Her second was that at least five of the other people who boarded at that stop were his entourage, 
and she and Ueda were suddenly alone in the middle of a ten-foot circle. Lieutenant Higashi, Ueda said. Ueda-san? Emma responded. You did an excellent job on that case. Ueda reached into his pocket for a slip of paper. A name and address of a person who bought the type of weapon you are interested in. And, separately, the ammunition. He held it out. Emma reached out her hand, although she felt a tremor of hesitation as he passed her the data. Even if he framed it as a reward for finding Takamura's would-be assassin, could she assume this favor came without strings? Ueda bowed his head minimally and moved away in perfect synchronization with his bodyguards to step off the car just as the doors opened. Emma dredged up the image of Santiago. It was worth it. It had to be worth it. And they had gotten the answer so easily. As the train pulled into her station, Emma wondered whether they could find the evidence she needed to nail Charles. See, that really emphasizes to me why this is such a special, wonderful show, because only this show would have Emma and Miyako racing to solve that bizarre poisoning while Nakajima Kai's influence in Tokyo spreads, while there's all this other insanity happening in the background, in the foreground, and everywhere. So even though there's basically war going on, it's still a cop show, people. Anyway, if you like what you heard, go over to episode two of season two. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please do be sure to rate, review, and share it with your friends. Um, you can listen ad-free if you join Romo limited at realm.fm or realm plus on apple podcast and of course you know if this happens to be the first time you've tuned into adrenaline you should know you can find a lot more shows like ninth step murders by following realm on apple podcast on spotify or at realm.fm and please do tune in to adrenaline next week as we kick off a brand new show so until then well uh, before then after then and in the interim i'm your host neil hulligers and also take care you're listening to adrenaline ninth step murders Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Ninth Step Murders is written by Malka Older, Curtis C. Chen, Jacqueline Koyanagi, and Fran Wilde. It is executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton. Starring Emily Wu Zeller. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Adrenaline is produced by Mary Asadulahi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Neil Helligers. Audio editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Marcus Begala. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Adrenaline by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.